You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us Friday, March the 10th for the reading of the Fort Collins, Coloradoan. My name is Ron Jones. We're going to read about Biden's budget aims, a proposal for almost 350 rentals up for review, Albert Bimper, CSU administrator and former football player, is leaving CSU, page two will read about the markets, the financial indexes, which were down this week. Page three, New Mexico lawmakers seek assurances amid prescribed burns. Also, jobless claims rise by almost, by the most in five months. Uh, obituaries, the weather, sports, and uh, also Kamala Harris and her views on optimism on the climate. So let's dig in. Biden budget aims to cut the deficit. Taxes on rich would fund project for the middle class. Josh Boak of the Associated Press writes from Philadelphia as political gridlock puts the government at risk of defaulting, President Joe Biden on Thursday made an opening bid with a budget plan that would cut deficits by $2.9 trillion over the next decade, a proposal that Republicans already intend to reject. It's part of a broader attempt by the president to call out Republicans who are demanding severe cuts to spending in return for lifting the government's legal borrowing limit. But the GOP has no counter-office so far, other than a flat no to a Biden blueprint with tax increases on the wealthy that could form the policy backbone of Biden's yet-to-be-declared campaign for re-election in 2024. Striding around a stage at a union training center in Philadelphia, Biden seemed to be in full campaign mode as he spoke about his plan for the government's finances and how his values contrasted with Republican priorities. I just laid out the bulk of my budget, Biden said. Republicans in Congress should do the same thing. Then we can sit down and see where we disagree. Yet, the president doubted that GOP lawmakers could make their numbers match their calls for a balanced budget, and he suggested that any efforts to do so could come at the expense of middle-class families. How are they going to make the math work, Biden said. What are they going to cut? Biden's package of tax and spending priorities is unlikely to pass the GOP-run House or Senate, where the Democrats hold a slim edge as proposed. 
House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Republican of California, said the president's proposed deficit reduction was inadequate. It just seems like it's going to create the biggest government in history. I don't think that's what we need at this time. In addition to deficit reduction, Biden's 10-year budget largely revolves around the idea of taxing the wealthy to help fund programs for the middle class, older adults, and families. It would raise $4.7 trillion from higher taxes, with an additional $800 billion in savings from changes to programs. The tax increases include a reversal of the 2017 tax cuts made by President Donald Trump on people earning more than $400,000 a year. Biden has floated a new minimum 25% tax on households worth $100 million or more. Also, the tax that companies pay on stock buybacks would rise fourfold, and those earnings, more than 400000 would pay an additional Medicare tax that would help the program keep solvent beyond the year 2050. Medicare could negotiate on the prices of more prescription drugs, helping to save the government money. Accompanying that would be $2.6 trillion worth of new spending, including the restoration of the expanded child tax credit that would give families as much as $3,600 per child, compared with the current level of $2,000. That credit would be fully refundable which means households could receive all of that sum even if they don't owe any taxes. At a time of increased tensions with Russia and China, the budget shows a decline in military spending as a share of the U.S. economy over the next decade, but federal spending would be equal to roughly one-quarter of economic output as the spending on Social Security and Medicare climbs, essentially keeping the government the same size as it currently is. The budget would seek to close the carried interest loophole that allows wealthy hedge fund managers and others to pay their taxes at a lower rate and prevent billionaires from being able to set aside large amounts of their holdings in tax-favored retirement accounts. The plan also projects, excuse me, projects saving $24 billion over 10 years by removing a tax subsidy for cryptocurrency transactions. McCarthy has called for putting the U.S. government on a path toward the balanced budget. But by refusing to raise taxes or cut Social Security and Medicare spending, GOP lawmakers face some harsh math that makes it hard to reduce deficits without risking a voter backlash before a presidential election. He has said his plan's release was pushed back because Biden's proposal was only now coming out. 
Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Democrat of New York, expressed skepticism that McCarthy has any coherent plan that House Republicans can coalesce around. Enough with the dodging. Enough with the excuses. With the economy already in a fragile state because of high inflation, if Biden and Congress cannot agree to raise the statutory debt cap of $31.4 trillion by this summer, the government could default on payments and perhaps shove the country into a recession. The budget also shows the shadow of Trump's legacy as provisions in his 2017 tax cuts will expire after 2025. Biden wants to eliminate elements of that overhaul, arguing that lower taxes failed to produce the growth that Trump promised. But Biden's budget does not address tax cuts that benefited households making less than $400,000. Their expiration could amount to a tax increase that would violate a pledge by Biden to only raise taxes on the wealthy. Based on the data, the cost of extending the tax breaks for people making less than $400,000 would be $1.5 trillion, according to Kyle Palmerlu, a senior fellow at the center-right American Enterprise Institute, that would have the deficit saving promoted by Biden, but Palmerlu cautioned that his estimates might be high because the president's plan includes the cost of the expanded child tax credit. Biden's proposal would increase the top marginal tax rate to 39.6% on income above 40, excuse me, $400,000. For households with a million dollars, in income, earnings from capital gains, such as stocks or property sales, would no longer enjoy a discounted tax rate compared with wages. The president would increase the corporate tax rate to 28% and increase the tax rate on U.S. multinationals' foreign earnings from 10.5% to 21%. In February, the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office estimated that the national debt held by the public will grow more than $20 trillion over the next decade. The publicly held debt, which reflects the cumulative impact of yearly deficits, would be equal to 118% of U.S. gross domestic product compared with 98% this year. Biden's budget would reduce the debt, though it would be still relatively higher to historical levels. Also on page one, North Fort Collins area, proposal for almost 350 rentals up for review. 
proposals to annex 3.74 acres and eventually build 346 market rate rental units in North Fort Collins are working their way simultaneously through the city's development review process. Thompson Thrift, a national development company that is also building apartments at Prospect Road and Shield Street, is combining two undeveloped parcels at 423 and 501 Spalding Lane for the project. The smaller 3.74-acre tract is in Larimer County and must be annexed into the city for the full 22-acre project to go forward. The Fort Collins Planning and Zoning Commission will hold a hearing on the annexation March 23rd, a neighborhood meeting which is required before formal plans can be submitted was held Wednesday. Here's what we know about the proposal. The site is on undeveloped land between East Willox Lane and Spalding Lane, just east of North College Marketplace and King Supers. The county land is currently zoned for commercial development, but Thompson Thrift is asking it to be rezoned as low-density mixed-use. Both the annexation and rezoning will be reviewed by the Planning and Zoning Commission, which will make a recommendation to City Council. Units will be a combination of one, two, and three-bedroom units, some in what the company is calling villas, other in two- to three-story apartment buildings. Redwood Street would be extended north through the site, and a bridge would be built over the canal, both at the developer's expense. The average tenant of one of Thompson Thrift's projects is a younger professional making about $80,000 a year. Rents are expected to be between $1,800 for a one-bedroom and $2,600 for a three-bedroom villa. Rents will vary by size of unit. Thompson Thrift plans to build, own, and manage the property. The plan is in its earliest stages, but will be required to have a traffic study to determine what roads and intersections might need improvement. The current intersection at Redwood and Willox contains a blind curve. Larimer County will review the project's traffic plan as it concerns county roads. Thompson Thrift hopes to begin construction early next year, with construction taking about two years. The company, which is a division of Watermark, first proposed the project in March 2021. Notable comments from the meeting were, quote, we want you to know that we know how beautiful this pasture is. Development represents a big change, as do most development projects, especially around the edges of the city.
That's from senior planner Clark Mapes. No one is against development. We want to make sure that our lives are not hugely negatively impacted. The questions you're hearing aren't about us being against your development, but we're de concerned about the impact on everything else. That is from a neighborhood resident. The Planning and Zoning Commission will review the annexation and rezoning proposal for 423 Spalding Lane at 6 p.m. Thursday, March 23rd. The meeting will be virtual or in person in City Council Chambers at 300 LaPorte Avenue in Fort Collins. Virtual meeting information will be posted 48 hours prior to the meeting at fcgov.com slash development review proposals. On a personal note, I lived at a house on 535 Spalding Lane. Uh, we were building the Rawhide Powerhouse. And it's a beautiful location. It's a hill that looks down on a meadow where the horses used to pasture. And it's a beautiful spot. So that's where almost 350 rentals are coming up. They're going to fill a pasture in. Next story on page one, Albert Bimper, B-I-M-P-E-R, CSU administrator and former football player leaving CSU. Kelly Lyle reports for the Coloradoan USA Today Network, Albert Bimper, a former football player who has served in a variety of teaching and administrative roles at Colorado State University, is stepping down at the end of the school year for a new post in his home state at the University of North Texas. Bimper, 38, is set to begin his new job as Executive Dean of North Texas College of Liberal Arts and Sciences, Social Sciences, on July the 1st. North Texas Provost Michael McPherson announced the hiring in a news release Wednesday referring to him as an experienced administrator and dedicated scholar educator. The University of North Texas is located in Denton, a suburb of Bimper's hometown of Dallas. CSU has been a place that raised me for so many years, Bimper told Source, an online publication of CSU's marketing and communications team. I've seen it as a student, as an athlete, as a faculty member, and as an administrator. I left home to find a home, and that has prepared me to go back home. It's been a privilege to call CSU home, too. That's why this place is special to me. 
Bimper served as a chief of staff to interim CSU president Rick Miranda from his appointment July the 1st, 2022, into January, when he was named interim director of CSU's School of Education. He first came to CSU as a 17-year-old freshman to play football for the Rams and legendary coach Sonny Lubick. Bimper, a four-year starter at center, was selected to play in the Vegas All-Star Classic following his senior year in 2005, and he also won a Super Bowl ring in 2007 with the Indianapolis Colts. He earned a bachelor's degree in health and exercise science from CSU, a master's degree in health and kinesiology at Purdue University, and a PhD in curriculum and instruction at the University of Texas before beginning his teaching career in 2012 at Kansas State. Bimper came to CSU the following year as an assistant professor in the Department of Ethnic Studies and has served as a, in a variety of teaching and administrative roles over the past decade. He was a senior associate athletic director for diversity and inclusion, executive director for the College of Liberal Arts, and played an instrumental role in creating a new master's degree program in sport management in partnership with the Colorado Rockies. Now to page two, and the money in markets, which has been on a steep decline since Tuesday after uh, Fed Chairman Powell's remarks on the pace of uh, rate hikes. Yesterday, the Dow was down 543 points, or 1.66%. It finished at 32,254. The NASDAQ was at 11,338. It lost 237 points. It's was a negative 2.05% drop. The S&P 500, 3,918, lost 73 points, or a negative 1.85%. The S&P mid-cap settled at 2,524. It lost 62.4 points, or a negative 2.41%. New York Stock Exchange, 15,140. It lost almost 300 points. It's a percentage drop of 1.94%. The Russell 2000, 1,826. It lost 52 points, or a negative 2.81%. The Wilshire 5000, 39,050. It lost 804 points or a negative 2.02%. So not a good ending to the week uh, as of yesterday. Now to page three, Colorado in the West. This is a story written by Susan Montoya Bryan, Associated Press from Albuquerque. 
Albuquerque, New Mexico. Members of New Mexico's congressional delegation are looking for assurances from the U.S. Forest Service that the agency is taking preventative measures to ensure that future prescribed fires don't turn into disasters. They sent a letter this week to Forest Chief Randy Moore pointing to the largest wildfire in state history that was sparked last year by the federal government. It charred more than 530 square miles of the Rocky Mountain foothills, destroying homes and livelihoods. A disaster of this proportion cannot happen again. U.S. Representatives Teresa Leger, L-E-G-E-R, Fernandez, and Gabe Vasquez wrote, The letter comes as the agency moves ahead with a billion-dollar investment to reduce the risk of wildfire across 45 million acres in the U.S. western part. It's a massive undertaking that involves more than 20 landscapes that are considered at highest risk. They stretch from arid New Mexico and Arizona to Idaho and Montana. The New Mexico lawmakers said they understand the role that prescribed fires will play as land managers look to restore overgrown and unhealthy forests amid climate change. Still reeling from the damage caused by the Hermit's Peak Calf, Calf Canyon blaze. Let me restate that. Hermit's Peak Calf Canyon blaze. They told more that trust can be restored in the agency's methods through communication with communities about upcoming burns and by explaining how protocols have been modified to ensure prescribed fires remain contained. Quote, the U.S. Forest Service admitted fault, but we have a long way to go before they regain the trust of New Mexicans. Leaguer Fernandez said in a statement, this letter requests that the Forest Service clearly explain what they plan to change to prevent another grave error like this. Our lands, forests, waters, and communities cannot afford anything less, and our people deserve it. Moore has yet to issue a formal response to the lawmakers, but he promised in an address earlier this year that collaboration with communities and Native American tribes is a priority for the Biden administration. Prompted by the New Mexico blaze, the agency last spring halted all prescribed burn operations for 90 days while it conducted a review of procedures and policies. By the end of the moratorium, managers learn that they can't rely on past success and must continuously learn and adapt to changing conditions, Moore said. A report on the cause of the New Mexico fire pointed to a series of missteps by the agency, most notably that officials underestimated the amount of timber and vegetation that was available to fuel the flames and the exceptional dry condition that has been plaguing the area for years. 
federal agencies have completed reviews of more than 30 fires between 2017 and 2022, including three in New Mexico. In 2005, the federal government conducted what officials at the time called the first known attempt to take a comprehensive look at escaped prescribed fires and near misses reviewing 30 cases to discover recurring lessons and whether there were emerging trends or gaps in knowledge. Common problems with the burn plans included complexity, risk assessments, and the lack of fire behavior calculations, similar to issues encountered years later with New Mexico's historic fire. Forest officials said Wednesday that the planning process for prescribed fires now includes a new template that addresses findings in the 2022 review. Part of that calls for plans to be validated and updated to ensure that the information is current and the most recent science and modeling is incorporated. For the most complex projects, there's a new requirement to have additional personnel and equipment on site within 30 minutes. Those contingency resources can help reinforce fire lines and mop up. Drought conditions are also mandated as part of the discussion, and managers have a checklist to go over daily with an agency administrator. Additionally, Human factors such as pressure, fatigue, and experience are considered, officials said. Just weeks ago, the Santa Fe National Forest delayed a project to burn debris piles in northern New Mexico due to snow and wind. Managers promised that the burn piles would be monitored closely and every precaution would be taken to ensure the piles are out before the arrival of spring winds and warming trends. As we resumed our prior our prescribed fire programs, we were met with a cooler and winter winter than last year, said Ivan Diego Knudsen, a spokesperson for the Southwest region. The precipitation is much needed, but it can hamper our plans as fire managers prepare for their projects. Federal maps show there are pile burns and other prescribed burn operations planned or currently underway across the West. Between October and the beginning of February, the agency reported that about 515 square miles have been treated with prescribed fire. The number is expected to grow one the results from recent projects in southern and eastern U.S. are added. In the southwest, which includes grasslands in Oklahoma and Texas, prescribed fire has been used on about 32 square miles since the moratorium was lifted last fall. Uh, let's hope they get it right. That was a terrible, terrible fire in New Mexico last year caused by an escaped prescribed burn. Now, 
locally to today's obituaries and death notices. Virginia Jenny Gilbert, 85, of Loveland, passed away March 3rd. Betty M. Hearman, H-E-E-R-M-A-N-N, 87, of Fort Collins, died March the 2nd. Daniel Robert Sturmitz, 58, of Fort Collins, died March the 5th. Our condolences to those families and loved ones. Now to today's weather. High 55, mostly cloudy. Tonight, low of 39, cloudy as well. Saturday, high 56, low 32, a couple of showers. Sunday, high 42, low 23, sunny to partly cloudy, cooler. Monday, high 50, low 30, times of clouds and sun. Tuesday, high 64, low 39, warmer. Wednesday, high 60, low 29, mostly cloudy. Thursday, high 43, low 26, cooler with a couple of showers. In the Almanac, the Northern Colorado Regional Airport through 3 p.m. Thursday, the temperature was yesterday 52 and 23. Normal high is 54 and 21. Last year's high was 23. Low of 3, so that was cold last year in March. Record high was 77 degrees in 1972. The record low was minus 28 in 1932. You've had a trace of precipitation in the last 24 hours. The record was 0.95 inches in 1992. Total this month is 7 one-hundredths of an inch. Normal, or total this year, is 1.02. Normal year-to-date, 1.43. So we're 0.4 inches behind already. Snowfall in the last 24 hours, a trace. Record was 12.7 inches in 1992. Total this month of snowfall, 0.9 inches. Total this season, 27.5 inches. Normal season to date, 34.6. So there we are, we're seven inches behind on snowfall early this year. Ski report, Arapaho Basin, 55 inches of base, one inch of new, 139 trails are open, nine lifts are running. Steamboat, uh, from zero to 104 inch base, two inches of new, 171 inches. Lifts open are 21. Vail, 70 inches, no new, 275 trails open. Winter Park, 69-inch base, 3 inches new, trails open 163, 19 lifts open. Let me go back to Steamboat. 
It's zero to 104 inch base, two inches of new, 171 trails are open, and 21 lifts. The UV index today is supposed to be around three at noon time, for that's a, a low range. Uh, air quality is supposed to be good today. Yesterday the particulates were at 46. Sun and moon. The sunrise today is at 6:21 a.m. Sunset tonight 6:01 p.m. Moonrise today, 9.30 p.m. Moonset today, 7.51 a.m. In the 48 contiguous states yesterday, the high was 91 degrees at Cotulo, Texas. The low was our neighbors to the north, minus 17 degrees at Boulder, Wyoming. Some of the expected temperatures around the state, the northwest corner, Craig is supposed to see uh, perhaps a little bit of rain, uh, high of 43, low of 29. Grand Junction's to be at 48 for a high and 38 for a low. Southwest corner, Durango, 41, for a high, 33 for a low. Alamosa, the southeast corner is going to warm up. Alamosa, 57 and 37. Trinidad, 68 for a high, 50 for a low. Pueblo, 65 and 42. They'll be golfing there today. Lamar, 68 and 41. Colorado Springs, 63 and 42. Uh, Julesburg, 45 and 33. So that's our look around the state. Uh, to the south of us, Albuquerque, 70 for a high, 47 for a low. That'll be nice. Then if we look at, say, Flagstaff, Arizona, 50 for a high, 37 for a low. Also in Las Vegas, 69 degrees, 58 for a low. Let's look farther south. Tucson, 82. Ooh, that's warm. And 54 for a low. So that'll be very nice. Santa Fe in uh, uh, a little bit higher elevation in New Mexico, 64 and 40. That'll be a spring-like day in Santa Fe. Now back to some national news. It's Friday, so the jobless reports come out. And now Matt Ott of the Associated Press reports that jobless claims rise by most in five months. The number of Americans applying for unemployment benefits last week jumped by the most in five months. But layoffs remain historically low as the labor market continues to be largely unaffected by the Federal Reserve's interest rates. Applications for jobless claims for the week ending March the 4th rose by 21,000 to 211,000 from 190,000 the week before. The Labor Department said Thursday, 
It's the first time in eight weeks claims came in above 200,000. The four-week moving average of claims, which flattens out some of the weekly ups and downs, rose by 4,000 to 197,000, remaining below the 200,000 threshold for the seventh straight week. Applications for unemployment benefits are considered a proxy for layoffs. Last month, the Fed raised its main lending rate by 25 basis points, the eighth straight right hike in its year-long battle against stubborn inflation. The central bank's benchmark rate is now in a range of 4.5 to 4.75 percent, its highest level in 15 years and some analysts are forecasting three or more increases that would push the lower end of that rate to 5.5%. The Fed's rate increases are meant to cool the economy, labor market, and wages, thereby suppressing prices. But so far, None of those things have happened, at least not to the degree that the central bank had hoped. Inflation remains at more than double the Fed's 2% target, and the economy is growing and adding jobs at a healthy clip. Last month, the government reported that employers added a better-than-expected 517,000 jobs in January and that the unemployment rate dipped to 3.4%, the lowest level since 1965. Analysts expect Friday's jobs report to show the U.S. economy added another 208,000 jobs in February. Fed policymakers have forecast the unemployment rate will rise to 4.6% by the end of this year, a sizable increase historically associated with recessions. About 1.72 million people were receiving jobless aid the week that ended February 25th, an increase of 69,000 from the week before. Now, the Nation and World column today. Vice President Harris stresses optimism on climate. The VP touts the administration's efforts at the Florida summit. Kurt Anderson of the Associated Press reports Vice President Kamala Harris said Wednesday, there is renewed cause for optimism given major U.S. laws enacted recently to tackle the global problem of climate change on multiple fronts. Harris was a star attraction at the Aspen Ideas Climate Conference, now in its second year in Miami Beach, Florida. The event drew about 2,300 participants, including other politicians, corporate CEOs, climate activists, entrepreneurs, artists, and many others. Harris appeared with Miami singer-songwriter 
Gloria Estefan in an interview setting on stage. The thrust of the conversation revolved around the Inflation Reduction Act, which President Joe Biden signed into law in August 18, excuse me, 2022. That despite its name, the measure is considered the biggest climate change legislation ever passed in the U.S. with some $370 billion directed at tackling the problem over 10 years. The major infrastructure bill also has numerous climate-related provisions. The overall arcing goal is for a 50% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions from vehicle tailpipes to power plants by 2030 to curb rising global heat. Quote, I think we all understand we have solutions, we have to be solutions driven, and the solutions are at hand. We need to make up for some lost time, no doubt. This is going to have to be an exponential impact on where we need to go, unquote. The conference is located in one of the most vulnerable U.S. cities to climate-related problems, including sea level rise, extreme heat, strong tropical storms, and threats to vulnerable wildlife such as manatees. Miami-Dade Mayor Daniela Levine Cava, a Democrat, said the area has more days of extreme heat than anywhere else in the country. Quote, we all know our environment is our economy, Levine Kava said at a Wednesday morning conference session, noting that the county established the first official chief heat officer of any government in the world. Two years ago, when we started, people laughed at us. No more. Estefan, who emigrated from Cuba as a child, has lived in Miami Beach for 38 years, told Harris it's obvious to her that climate change is altering South Florida in many ways, from rising seas to the disappearance of coral reefs. We need an administration focused on the things that need to be fixed. Estevan said, we absolutely need to do something to stem the tide. The Inflation Reduction Act, among many other climate provisions, includes tax credits for electric vehicle purchases and investments in renewable energy such as wind and solar. There's $60 billion in business tax credits to manufacture things like solar panels and batteries and other tax credits for nuclear power and carbon capture technology aimed at reducing fossil fuel emissions. There's money to convert the entire United States Postal Service fleet to electric vehicles, pay for electric school buses, assist farmers in green agriculture practices, and for trees and parks in urban areas. Harris said the incentives for people to buy electric vehicles, including cheaper used vehicles, are an example of how the Biden administration wants to bring a f make them affordable to far greater numbers of people. 
It's about bringing down costs, Harris said. I think many people have the will to participate in what we must do to reduce greenhouse gases, but not everyone has the means. The bill would impose a new fee on excess methane emissions from oil and gas drilling while giving fossil fuel companies access to more leases on federal lands and waters. That latter trade-off has some climate activists concerned about continued fossil fuel exploration. And the broader issue of who decides where all the money will be spent as it goes out to states. Still, Tom Steyer, a Democratic presidential candidate in 2020, said the legislation has opened the door to more private investment in technology and other efforts to combat climate change, and that the returns will be worth it. If you don't do this, you're a dope, said Steyer, co-chair of the Galvanized Climate Solutions investment firm. It's cheaper to be clean. It's better business to be clean. Although the conference is dominated by Democrats and climate activists, conservatives are also involved. U.S. Representative John Curtis, Republican of Utah, who pointed out his district includes Carbon County, is chair of the Conservative Climate Caucus with about 80 members in the House. I'm a Republican. I'm here to talk climate. Republicans care deeply about the earth. We don't talk about it very well, Republican Curtis said. I believe we can have affordable energy. There's more we agree on than disagree on, unquote. Miami Mayor Francis Suarez said it's clear that climate change skepticism has largely fallen out of favor among politicians of all stripes. Quote, we don't have the luxury of pretending climate change doesn't affect us. There's still a lot of work to be done. I'd like to see a world where we can reverse the damage that's been done, unquote, while noting the damage from hurricanes Irma and Ian and frequent flooding in his city. Now that we've talked about some warmer temperature and climate issues in the South, let's go to sports. Major League Baseball, shifty business, infield alignment changes are raising batter spirits and averages. Alanis Thames of the Associated Press reports from St. Petersburg, Florida, when Yankee switch hitter Aaron Hicks batted from the left side last season, who is almost always greeted by an infield shift, a wall of defenders camped in shallow right field. So it was a striking moment in New York's dugout when Hicks, facing a traditional infield alignment, hit his first clean signal to right field early this spring training. 
Quote, he probably hasn't seen that hit in almost eight years, manager Aaron Boone said. Unquote. Hicks and the rest of baseball's most frequently shifted batters are getting used to a new reality, or rather, adjusting back to an old one after Major League Baseball passed rules limiting infield shifts ahead of this season. So far, those limits seem to be raising batter spirits, and they might be bolstering batting averages, too. Quote, I really hope this isn't the year I start hitting the ball to the shortstop on the ground. Yankees left-handed slugger Anthony Rizzo said with a smile. Quote, especially young left-handed hitters will be introduced to the three to four hole that's been gone for about seven to eight years now, unquote. Teams must now keep two infielders on each side of second base, all with their feet in the dirt when a pitch is delivered. The aim is to open up space for more singles in a game after data-driven teams spent the last decade carefully crafting defensive formations that targeted each hitter's tendencies. It's too early in spring training to draw conclusions from the numbers, but key statistics are trending in a promising direction for hitters. Batting averages through the first 10 days of spring training are up to 263 from 259 last season. Crucially, left-handed hitters, the most frequent targets of the modern infield shift, are hitting 274 this spring, up from 255 before. Righty averages have dropped from 262 to 255. Overall scoring is at 11.3 runs per game, up from 10.6. There's been a disagreement in the sports analytics community about how much impact the shift limits will have, but it does seem to be affecting hitters' psyches for now. I'm not getting thrown out from shallow right field on a line drive, said Rizzo, who shifted in 82.6 of his plate appearances last season. Tampa Bay manager Kevin Cash said he has noticed some difference already this spring, but expects more offense to come later as big league regulars play deeper in the games. I think there's been so many balls already this spring that if you look to if that happened last year, they ran out. We had a defender there. Umpires have broad discretion to enforce the league's new guidelines, but some clubs are already testing how strict those rules are. When lefty slugger Jolie Gallo shifted in 90% of his plate appearances last year of the Minnesota Twins came to plate in a game against the Boston Red Sox last week. Boston experimented with a loophole in the new rules, moving center fielder Adam Duvall to shallow right fielder and left fielder Rymel Tapia to center field. And I'm afraid that's all the time we have today for the reading of the Fort Collins, Colorado one. Uh, it'll be interesting to watch baseball since they can't put in on these shifts that used to look like a softball game instead of a hardball game. My name is Ron Jones. Please stay tuned to our 
rest of our programming today here at AINC. This is Friday, March the 3rd. Stay safe up there in Fort Collins. Enjoy the warmer weather. It's coming sooner. Promise. Stay safe. AINC programming is brought to you in part by the Broomfield Community Foundation. Broomfield's leading partner and voice for philanthropy since 1993. AINC presents your Low Vision Resource of the Day, the Center for People with Disabilities. This organization provides advocacy and training for people with disabilities. Learn more by visiting cpwd.org or calling 303-442-8662 or emailing info at cpwd.org. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777. This is the Audio Information Network of Colorado.